You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another amazing episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. Today, I am super excited to introduce to you our youngest guest yet. It is the incredible Julissa Minaya. Julissa is just, honestly, we, we've been following each other on Instagram for about a year now. And I have watched her grow into this incredible social justice advocate in the eating disorder recovery space. And Julissa is going through her own recovery and she just has been developing this beautiful voice, especially representing people of color in the eating disorder recovery community. So I'm truly thankful to have you on the show, Julissa. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for today. Super honored to be on here and one of your youngest, or the youngest um, guest speaker (laughs) on here. And yeah, I was thinking about it the other day. And I was like, yeah, me and Meg have followed each other for about a year because you were like one of my like first, I guess, like followers, you would say. So yeah, I thought that was super cool too. I am so honored that I was one of your first followers because your Instagram's like blowing up. <laughs> yeah, it has so original. Been, like, yeah, literally. I'm like, <laughs> where did all these people come from? And then I remember like a group of like 10 to 30 people that have just like been here since the beginning. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is so cool. And it's really amazing to watch you grow. I feel like as a 16 year old, so much happens you you start 16 and within a year your life is just suddenly changing because you're growing up so fast and I would say last year you were someone who was in recovery but you didn't hadn't taken that step towards that advocacy role yet and Mm -hmm. I guess before we dive into your story could you explain to me why you decided to take that route with your Instagram yeah So like you said, in the beginning, it was just like, um, my recovery account started as a way for me just to document what I was going through. Um, I was supposed to be going off to treatment, which ended up not happening because of COVID. Um, But I wanted to just document something. I wanted to look back on something similar to um, Mia Finley from what Mia did next. I I think about it and I'm like, it's kind of like that. Like, I just wanted to document something. And then in November slash December, I was invited to be a part of this project called the Activist Collab, which is a group mm-hmm. of young activists um, just trying to make change in different areas. And the founder of it, who's a producer in New York, I love her, Ashley, this like, oh my God, love her so much. <laughs> anyway, she DM'd me and was just like, hey, like I'm super inspired by your advocacy work. And I think you'd be a great activist to be a part of this. And I was like, activism? Who is she? I, I don't, I'm not an activist. <laughs> like, I'm just documenting my recovery journey. I, I didn't 
um, have an intention to get followers or to be on podcasts and different things. Like I never had that intention. I just wanted to show my recovery and be able to look back on it in a few months or a few years, whatever it was. So yeah, she invited me to be a part of that. And then that launched on January 25th of this year. So still pretty new, still having a great time there. We love the activist collab. And I made this post um, in the beginning of January and it was about people of color and eating disorders. And so that was what kind of just like made my account like blow up. Like I've gained almost like 5,000 followers from just that post, which is like crazy to me because that was only two months ago. So my account has literally blown up. So I made a post about people of color and eating disorders. And that was kind of what started everything. And I kind of found my niche and my area on the internet where I I felt like I could really relate to something and thrive. The original post was supposed to be about um, children and eating disorders because I was a a child with an eating disorder. So I was like, you know what? I don't think enough people talk about this. I'm going to talk about it. Then I was scrolling through statistics and I found BIPOC um, eating disorder statistics. And I was like, oh my goodness. Some of those statistics were like so shocking Mm -hmm. and heartbreaking. And I was like, I can relate to this. Like this has been my life for the past few years. Like I can, I can relate to this so much, but I hardly ever see anyone talking about it. And that's because one, they don't even, they don't have the, I guess, knowledge or the experience or two, they just like can't relate to it. And most people don't talk about things that they can't relate to. And so I was like, I'm going to talk about this and I'll just see how it goes. Hopefully people are receptive to it. If not, that's okay because my account isn't to please anyone. Um, But people were really receptive to it. And a lot of people were sharing it. And that's kind of just like where it started, I guess. And my account has really grown. My advocacy has really, really grown in these past two months. Wow. I can really see how your page brings advocacy, but it sheds light on simple topics that, no, they're complex topics shared simply. You know, it's like you really put out the facts and you share information that people need to know. Like, in a very digestible way. So I, that's yeah. what I love about your page. Do you remember those facts that you shared about BIPOC kids with eating disorders? So it was just BIPOC in general. I didn't really do, mm. um, I, I did another post about just kids with eating disorders, but this one was focused on just BIPOC. So in any age range, but some of them were like, black teenagers are 50% more likely to exhibit bulimic behaviors than white teenagers. And um, it about the same thing goes, for Hispanic teenagers. And I hold both of those identities. I'm Dominican, Black, Mexican, and German. And so I hold both a Black part of me and a Hispanic part of me. So I could really relate to that. And how Asian American college students are more likely to restrict and purge than um, their non-Asian American peers. The fact that Black people are half as likely to get treatment and um, even be asked about eating disorder even though they might be struggling longer than the average white person does with their eating disorder. And things like that are like super heartbreaking to me. And then we bring in um, things like insurance, lack of insurance, not even being able to have the right care with your doctor or whatever it is. And then low income households and families that can't even access that. And then weight stigma. So there's so many barriers to treatment. And I really wish that like we shed more light on that because there's this like, I guess, everyone's in the recovery community is always like you can fully recover and it's like yes you can but some people it's very much harder to because of all of these barriers all these systemic things and things that are out of people's control like weight bias weight stigma that's out of 
my control. That's that's up to the doctor who doesn't have education or whatever it is, it's old school, whatever it is. And so there's a lot of things that are out of our control that contribute to our recovery. And if we're even able to get treatment and be able to fully recover. Yes. Oh my gosh. There's so many barriers to treatment and it's so layered on, you know, it's based on systematic issues and then favors those with privilege. I mean, I'm going to say it, it's not the first time I've said it on this podcast, but the stereo, I kind of represent the stereotype of those with eating disorders, which is only thin, white, middle-class women It's have eating disorders. And that's why it's so important. There are people like you being able to share your own experience about eating disorders because eating disorders do not discriminate. And exactly. I think we all grew up thinking that they did. yeah yeah exactly I definitely grew up thinking that they did I thought that like well you know I'm not white and I'm not super thin so I can't have an eating disorder and I wonder what it would have been like okay so I live in a body that benefits from thin privilege I never deny that I'm not like I was never like emaciated or whatever like I never looked like that like I had quote unquote anorexia or whatever it was, but I, I live in a body that benefits from thin privilege. And I, I always think about, well, if I was living in a larger body, what would it be like add on to being a person of color? Those are two visibly mm-hmm. marginalized things you can see. And so I, I always wonder about that. And even like that, I was privileged, even being cisgender and straight. And I am middle-class. I live in an area where a lot of us have money and we're able to access treatment. I'm, I'm very thankful for my parents who were able to get me treatment as soon as possible, whatever I needed, they were able to provide. But I would think about, well, what if I didn't have those resources, my outcome probably wouldn't be the same. And that's really sad to think about because, you know, everyone like feminism and everyone in the eating disorder recovery community always talks about equality and all this and that. But it's like, I don't think we need equality. I think we need equity. And so we're just like accommodating everyone for what they need in order to go to treatment. Because if we were all equal, not everyone would be able to still succeed if we were all equal. So I think equity is what we need, not equality. That is really well said, Jalissa. I totally agree with you there. I think equity is very much needed in this space. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so could you tell the listeners a little bit about your your life story and your recovery, because you had your eating disorder at a very young age. And I'm curious how your, your identity as a person of color impacted your eating disorder. Yeah, definitely. So I could never, I was never able to see the correlation between the two until I was able to look outside of it. So as a person in recovery, now I'm not in my eating disorder. I hardly ever use eating disorder behaviors at this point. It's like a never it's like a never thing. I guess you would say it's a very <laughs> rare thing. So now I'm able to look back at that and be like, yeah, there's a lot of correlation between the two. Um, ever since I was a little girl, around like two years old, I started going to private school. And so as I live in a predominantly white area in Texas. All the private schools I've been to, which is so far only been two, are all predominantly white. The student body doesn't even come close to half of having POC um, children in the school, maybe about like 10 to 15%. So very, very small. And my classes were tiny. My graduating class in sixth grade of my elementary school was literally five kids. So I I was always at very small private schools that are very predominantly white. And in that, all of the people I was around were 
everyone I was around was like super thin and tall and had long legs and blonde hair and blue eyes and just I guess like the beauty standard and so I so badly wanted to look like that and it was something that I guess it was in like the back of my mind I thought about it a lot but I never acted on it um because I was like well I it wasn't really like I guess a concern of mine as a young girl until I reached around the age of 10 um and it was something I always noticed but it was never like again it was never anything I acted on or decided that I was going to change until about the age of 10 and so I was an actress, a figure skater, and a dancer for well over 10 years all combined. So over half of my life I've been performing. And I had gotten back from a convention in LA where I was trying to get signed by an agent. And my acting coach had told me that if I was smaller, then I might be more successful in getting an agent. And so I was like, okay, um, sure. So I went on my first diet oh when I was my 10. Gosh. And um, I came back the next week and I was... I lost a bit of weight and she congratulated me and I was like, Ooh, I like that feeling. So I'm just going to continue. Um, so I did, and it developed into a full blown eating disorder around the age of 12 or 13. I had gone, I had switched schools just because my elementary school only went up to sixth grade. So I was 12 or 13 at this time in seventh grade. And that's when it, I guess, turned into a full blown eating disorder. I was using behaviors very, very often and I didn't know what to do because I was like, well, I'm not like super thin, so I can't have an eating disorder. Like, I don't know what this is. And I kept like looking up things like how to tell if you have an eating disorder. Do I have an eating disorder? Signs and warnings of an eating disorder. And it was like always on my mind. But I was like, well, I can't have one because I'm not thin and I'm not white. So girls like me don't go through this. People who look like me don't go through this. So it can't be that. And then in eighth grade, I finally told my parents, so it was about a year and a half of this going on. I finally told my parents and I was like, yeah, this has been happening for a long time. I think I need to go to therapy or something. So then they were able to get me a therapist. I started going to therapy and it wasn't good at first. Like the therapy was great, but I didn't have the motivation to recover because Mm. I always thought I wasn't thin enough. And I was still in denial for a really long time. For a really, really long time, I was even scared to say the words, I have an eating disorder. I always called it my problem or my struggle or my food thing. It was never, I could never use the words because I was just really, really uncomfortable with my illness and the fact that me, a woman of color, had an eating disorder. So I was in therapy for about a year. And then I um, recovery was like basically non-existent. It was just like, eh, I kind of want to recover, but like, I don't want to do anything because like my eating disorder is okay. It's not that bad. Mm-hmm. So then in January of 2020 was when the idea of treatment came up. And I was like, no, I don't need to go to treatment. But my team was like, yeah, you do. And I was like, no. <laughs> um, so I got on the waiting list for a few places. And then in March, I was finally accepted. And I had to wait like two or three weeks until I could actually go. So I was getting ready to go. Um, my parents brought up to me a few weeks before I was supposed to go. They're like, we think if you start trying to recover at home, that it wouldn't be as hard to recover in the hospital. And maybe you wouldn't have to be there as long. And I was like, hmm. So I, I don't know, I don't know what switch kind of just changed. I don't know what happened, but I was, I really took that to heart. So then I made a recovery account and here we are a year later. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like it worked out for you. Are you, so are you, you said you don't use behaviors anymore. Would you say you're still in recovery or are you maintaining recovery? 
or are you fully recovered? Do you have a status update? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm maintaining recovery. I still have some things to work through like body image and um, I still do have eating disordered thoughts. I just never act on them anymore. I'm not regularly acting on them. I can't even tell you the last time I did act on a behavior, which is like huge for me. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm very, very thankful for that. But yeah, I would still say I am very much in recovery and man- maintaining recovery. Well, that is truly amazing. Cause I feel like you know, you really went through the ringer at a young age to go through an eating disorder starting at age 10 and then getting through it by the time you're 16. I I don't know about you, but when I emerged out of my eating disorder, I felt like a wise old woman. (laughs) I was like 23 and like, you're only 16 and emerge, you know, maintaining to be emerging fully recovered. And I can tell that you have that wisdom that recovery gives you which is really cool yeah yeah definitely I 100% agree with that I have always been told like since I was a little girl that I was like super wise and that I was gonna like change the world and stuff and I was like well people just say that to like every kid but then recovery came and my account came and I was like now I actually do feel like I'm gonna change the world and I actually do feel wise because I've learned so much through this process and through everything and like even in my bio I have 16 year old changing the world one post at a time because I genuinely genuinely believe that I can change the world and I think that's a really really liberating feeling just to be proud of yourself outside of something that something that has to do with your body back a year ago um a year and a half ago two years ago whatever it was the only thing I could be proud of myself was for shrinking my body or using eating disorder behaviors that was the only thing I was happy with and now it's like there's a bunch of things outside of that that I'm very happy and content with and that have nothing to do with my body and my eating disorder. So because you're a 16 year old changing the world one post at a time, what would you say is your main message that you're trying to share with everyone? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I think my main message that I'm just trying to share with everyone is that eating disorders do not discriminate, but treatment does, even though people like to pretend that it doesn't and that everyone has the accessibility to treatment that's not realistic and that's not true and I think people need to talk about that more so that's definitely something I'm trying to get across and then also that you you need to I guess you need to talk about the intersectionality between social justice and eating disorders because eating disorders are political and that doesn't mean that they voted for a political candidate or whatever it literally just means that like it, it talk it, it brings in fundamental rights and things like healthcare and all of that. Like it's so intersectional with social justice and things like how BIPOC are disproportionately affected and don't get the treatment they need and deserve. And same with fat people who live in a larger body. Like that's that's something that needs to be addressed and something that's not addressed as much as I would like to see. And I think people living in larger bodies would also like to see. So there's a lot of a lot of intersectionality I think that's something that I try to um I guess show and talk about as much as I can especially with the identity I hold as a woman of color um but of course I'm always trying to pass the mic and amplify the voices of identities I don't hold like anyone a part of the LGBTQ plus community or a person living in a larger body or people with disabilities that also have an eating disorder or any other mental illness or just are disabled and that's the only thing um not to minimize that, but some people only have a disability. They're not showing with mental illness um, and things like that. So I'm always trying to pass the mic while also sharing my story and talking about intersectionality because that's super important and something that's not touched on enough. 
Yeah. I was actually wanting to ask you, could you explain a little bit about how diet culture is rooted in racism? Because when I found that out, I was listening to like an interview that Virgie Tovar gave. She's like a fat activist on the food psych podcast. I heard that a few years ago and I was just like, wow, I am amazed that we're all obsessed with dieting and it's really kind of this rooted in racism. And we all pretend it's this amazing thing. You know, obviously I don't think diet dieting is great, but at one point I did and we thought it was amazing. And if someone had said, Oh, by supporting dieting, you're supporting kind of like a racist mindset. I would have thought differently perhaps about taking on a diet when I was young. Yeah. Yeah. I love that question so much because I think it might have been last Monday or the Monday before someone with like a bunch of followers this um, one of those like gym bro dudes, uh, one of those diet culture obsessed people reposted something from me that was talking about how you can't be quote unquote anti racist if you're not anti diet, if you're not anti fat phobia, all of that, because it's all intersectional, like everything having to do with social justice and mental illness, all of that is literally so intersectional. And so many like this man is like twice my age and like so and he left my name on the post and I was like why would you do that (laughs) so all of these people (laughs) I like to single a lot (laughs) um all of these people came to my page literally been twice my age three times my age men had that had no business looking at my account or being in my dms were commenting on that post dming me telling me that I didn't know what I was talking about and I was full of this and that and all anything you can think of any name you can think of I got called and I was like y'all are older than my dad like chill (laughs) out some of y'all are old enough to be my grandfather like literally (laughs) calm down and so all all of my I like to call them my Hayes mamas um on Instagram they were all like they (laughs) I literally love the Hayes help at every help at every size mamas yes um and so they all like came for this man and they were like defending me in the comment section going back and forth with people and I was like thank you I really appreciate it and we got the post taken down just great um because it was it caused me like a lot of harm that night and I don't mean like I was like super sad or anything it was just like my phone was blowing up I was literally just trying to do homework and live my life and I just keep getting these mean dms and comments and I'm just like chill yeah that was very fun but yeah he took down the post and then had a non-apology talking about how he wasn't sorry but he took it down for whatever reason I don't know anyway yeah so he just completely uh, disagreed with me that diet culture is rooted in white supremacy and all this and I didn't really feel like educating the man because um he didn't want to be educated Mm -hmm. so yeah Yeah. fun times um that was completely besides the point (laughs) of what you asked but basically in terms of like diet culture being rooted in white supremacy, almost every oppressive system you can think of is rooted in white supremacy. Like homophobia, that connects to white supremacy. Things like um, being fat phobic, all of that. And it's just like the roots of it and like things like the way, I guess, diet culture will colonize certain foods and harm certain food, or not harm, but I guess, so we're demonize certain foods. And those foods are really foods that a lot of POC communities eat on a regular basis, like white rice and certain sauces. And but yeah, things like that is just like white supremacy in action. Um, the way they colonize foods and just turn it into this diet culture, low carb, low fat, low sugar, whatever it is. And it's like, 
that food is a staple in so many other cultures and the way that the American society has demonized so many cultural foods that are literally staple in in places around the world. And it's like so much of diet culture is is centered around demonizing other foods. I love um, this Instagram call, account called The Black Nutritionist. And she has this hashtag called Decolonize Your Plate, which is like a great hashtag. And she's always talking about um, things like that. So yeah, I hope I explained that well. <laughs> No, you are, you are very, you're very articulate. Have no worries about that. I think it's a complex subject to talk about too. Like, it's like, where do you start? And I think with diet culture, there's also, and I don't know if you know much about this, but diet culture kind of puts white body types on pedestal. There it is. Yep said we need to be said okay good period <laughs> and then it demonizes larger bodies which tend to be of people of color you know yeah and yeah. so that's what was really mind-blowing to me it was like this diet culture mindset tells everyone that you need to be farthest from a body of color I don't know what the right way to say it is but um you need you need to have a smaller body because it's it's more white looking than having a larger body. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, we see a lot of a lot of that in just the American society and what we deem as beautiful and desirable. And most of the time, it's just white, thin bodies. And it, it's crazy to me because, you know, over the years, the beauty standard has changed. And the further we get into time and where we are now is the closer it gets to black bodies without actually being black bodies. Mm -hmm. So we hear all the time about culture appropriation. I, I, I think that a lot of white people don't understand what that is. And so things like um, just appropriating cultures that don't belong to you. And anyone can do more research on that. Um, that's for another discussion. But when I say that, the beauty standard gets closer and closer to black bodies with actually without actually being black bodies. I mean, like things like big lips are desirable and having like wide hips and um, a big bottom and things like that, like that is things that like women of color have been, um, I guess, demonized for and constantly told their body's not good enough and they need to cover up because it's too showy and that their legs are too big or their lips are too big or their nose is too big or their hair is too curly or too coarse or their skin is too dark whatever it is we're seeing that go into the beauty standard now and it's like all these women have been punished and told they were not beautiful for just living in their natural body and now we see women getting surgery and doing things to their bodies to look like that beauty standard without actually being that beauty standard so things like getting a spray tan and things like that like black women and like me I literally I know I benefit from colorism and I have lighter skin than a dark-skinned woman but I still go through racism I still get told like as a little girl when I was four years old I thought that the brown Barbies weren't pretty so I never played with them because I thought my skin color was ugly and that, that's what I was taught from the people around me and now I see white women getting spray tans and doing things like that and just getting way darker than their natural color would ever be. And I'm just like, I've literally been bullied for that for years and now you're being praised for it. And then same like wearing box braids and certain clothes. And it's just like, this, this is 
POC's culture and they were harmed and they were bullied and they r- faced racism just for it to be stripped away from them. And now they can't even have it anymore and enjoy it because white people have colonized it and decided that it's theirs to take. So they can do it if they want and there's nothing wrong with it. And people of color can't say anything about it. And it's things like that, that just like, I guess really just like kind of piss me off. <laughs> um, you know, it's, very eye-opening when you when you talk about that because I do look at I do see how the beauty standards have changed and you see people like you know the Kardashians who get all the surgeries and try to make their bodies look like a woman of color's body Mm -hmm. and yeah and then everyone tries to go for that so that is that would be very frustrating especially if you were bullied for those exact traits growing up exactly literally like as a little girl having thick thighs and hips like I developed all of those things at a very young age and I was told to cover up and that I was being slutty or I was being this and that and I'm just like I'm just living in my body but now we see white women doing the exact same thing but theirs is not natural and they're being praised for it until they have an hourglass shape and that they're beautiful and that this and that and it's like what where's that same energy with women of color who have those body types naturally mm-hmm. so another question I had for you I wanted to bring it back to more of the eating disorder community. Mm-hmm. What can like white eating disorder recovery professionals like myself and the majority of eating disorder recovery professionals do to support POC population? Because right now it's, we know that we should be elevating melanated voices and marginalized voices, but are there any specific tangible things that you suggest that we do? Yeah, I, I love that so much. I love that question a lot. Also, I love elevating melanated voices. That is my new favorite saying. I'm going to take that and <laughs> use it all the time. And I will tell people I heard that from you. Oh, um, you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think just like educate like today someone literally commented and replied back to me because there's this post. Sorry, again, getting off. But it, it all, it, it, it all intertwines. It's kind of like your job. Yeah, literally just to talk about things all here and there and then tell you how they intertwine. So just got to connect the dots in a little bit. So today, I, or the other day, I commented on this post from the curly therapist and she was talking about how like white people need to stop calling people of color like exotic and touching our hair and being like thinking they're entitled to knowing our ethnicity and our racial background and just asking you, like I've been asked so many times, so what are you? And I'm like, I'm, I'm human, just like you. And then I've been told that my, like once I was talking about my hair, my friend was like, that's not hair, that's a weave. And I was like, my mouth, my jaw dropped. I was like, first of all, this is not a weave. Second of all, bold of you to assume. And third of all, even if it was, why do you feel the need to say that? Like that is so, anyway. So I commented on her post and I was like, thank you for this. Like I can relate so hard. I don't know why people think this is appropriate to say, like stop. (laughs) And so then this white person commented back and was like, well, how are we supposed to learn if we can't ask you questions? And like, we're trying to make this world more inclusive to POC, but you guys are just like, ruining it or something like that and I was like what what the heck what do you mean so then I commented back and I was like well POC aren't your encyclopedia like stop expecting us to educate you 
stop just like stop expecting this and I was like literally someone touching my hair and calling me exotic isn't making any more inclusive space and it's not educating you in any way and then I was like do some research like there's so many free resources and like books that are low cost and stuff made by black authors you can watch youtube videos made by black people and things like that and that's all free and so I I told that person and I was like just do some research and she was like or they I don't know their pronouns but I'm just gonna assume they're they so I'm gonna go with they um they were like well when white people try to research you all just get mad at us and call us and tell us we're wrong and I was like who is you all? Stop trying to generalize us, please. So yeah, that was not fun. So I think just like using the resources that are provided, like literally there's so much on the internet and it takes so little effort just to learn a little bit. And then also just like, if you have a question about like how you can best support POC, if you have any POC clients, ask them. I kid you not, like if I was asked by a white woman um, clinician, like my therapist or my dietitian or my doctor, what would have been most beneficial to me as a POC? Like that would have helped me so much. And that's such a small task. So it's things like that, that people don't even think about that are like so beneficial and so helpful and things that like don't even take much, like asking someone how you can help like one of your clients, if you have a person of color client like that, that's literally free. It doesn't require much. And most of the answers aren't going to be like, oh, I want you to give me a thousand dollars in reparations. Like it's never going to be something like that. It's going to be something practical that you can do. And that's going to help your client who is a person of color. So I think just talking and asking questions and don't expect us to educate you, but ask us things like what is helpful, what is not helpful, like open the conversation for honesty But again, don't expect us to be your encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. So what would have helped you when you were going through your recovery, you know, as a person of color? I think definitely seeing more POC voices on the internet being amplified. Um, And there's a lot of like POC creators on Instagram that talk about the same things I do. But the reason I never found them was because no one was ever amplifying their voices. And I think if, if white people just like, if white creators just amplified the voices of people of color, again, that's a small task that can literally change so many lives. Like if I would have saw the accounts that I'm following now, um, a year ago, that would have, or two years ago, like even when I was 10, um, which was six years ago, not two. Um, but even when I was 10, I was on Instagram when I was 10 and I didn't know about the Hayes movement or the intuitive eating or, um, anti-diet or any of that but if I would have saw just someone who looked like me and their voice being amplified that that would have changed like so much um so just amplifying and elevating melanated voices is something that's so important and doesn't even take much effort Mm -hmm. so who do you follow that you would have really benefited from following several years ago Ooh, that's oh my god okay Megan Meg period with the good questions (laughs) thank you um I also think you're my first Gen Z representation on this on this podcast everyone's gonna be able to tell yep yeah (laughs) by the way I talk that's well you know what a lot of my clients are Gen Z so I I talk to your kind all the time your generation tell them to go follow me (laughs) they will they will 
period. Okay. Um, some of my favorite account favorite accounts that would have really helped me um six years ago. The nutrition tea. Yes, uh-huh. such uh-huh. such a good account. Um, your Latina nutritionist, uh-huh. also another wonderful account. Some of my friends also, like Alex Food Freedom, who's a 17-year-old um who focuses on the same thing I do. She's an Asian American. Love Alex. She's like one of my best friends. Um, and then this is not your trend. Another one of my friends run by this uh, girl named Eleni. Love her. Um, intersectional recovery, the black nutritionist, um, black embodied Sonia Renee Taylor. Great ones. Yeah. Those are like eight staple ones that I absolutely love and am always, always inspired by and just appreciate their content so much amazing thank you for sharing those I follow many of those accounts and it took me a while to find them like I had to search the internet as well to make sure I diversified my feed because it takes a while like you have to put in some effort uh, to find people of color who are willing to talk about eating disorder recovery and anti-diet culture content so yeah definitely very true You know, it has been such a pleasure to have you on this show. And I just wanted to ask you, what words of advice do you have for those struggling with eating disorders right now? Ooh, that's a really, really good one. Again, period. Meg with the good questions. Go, Margaret. Sorry, I literally, (laughs) I'm going to start calling you that now just because I know it's your name. But if you don't want me to. You should call me Margaret. I love that you discovered that. And now now everyone on my podcast knows. And who knows? Maybe we'll know. They'll all know. They'll all just start calling me Margaret. It's going to be great. Do it. Do it. Do it. I will pay each person $5 that starts. No, I'm just kidding. I don't have that kind of money. I don't know how many people listen to this, um, but I don't have that kind of money. Anyway, so words of advice I would give to anyone going through recovery, that there is always purpose attached to your pain, um, even when you can't see it. So like for me, I was like super hopeless in my like very early teen years, even though I'm still kind of in them, but we're going to pretend I'm 35. So Um, anyway, but yeah, so that is, there's always purpose attached to your pain. And that is, it's really difficult to see it in that moment. But me reminding myself of that is literally like what saved my life and reminded me that I still have a purpose on this earth and that one day it's going to get better even if that day is not tomorrow or the next day um but one day it's it's going to get better and I'm able to I'm going to be able to look back and be like wow look at Jalissa two years ago wow (laughs) um and I'm able to do that now which is like really really amazing to me last Monday I hit my one year in recovery um which was huge for me anyway so yeah and I was I I always remember that quote and that like so it's really really helped me and I think it will help other people too (laughs) how did you find your purpose in the in recovery Ooh, that's a really good question too just hit me with the good cues yep period what can I say (laughs) I had to find myself outside of my eating disorder and think about who I was pre-eating disorder and who I wanted to be post-eating disorder and I really had to remind myself and constantly think about how my purpose was not to Caroline Duner from the fuck it diet has a great quote about this um so I'm 16 so I don't pay bills but everything else applies to me and it was that I think it's like you were not put on this earth to lose weight and pay bills 
And I was like, that's such a good one because I think so we get so lost in like what the world wants from us instead of like what actually we want from us. And personally, like I want to be able to help people and change the world and change other people's lives. And that that was how I found my purpose was thinking about who I was outside of my eating disorder. Wow. Beautiful, beautiful (laughs) words of wisdom from Julissa. I super appreciate it. Love it. I love all the Gen Z mannerisms she's doing. Well, you know, if you guys could watch this, you would see there's a lot going on on the other side. Dancing. (laughs) Thank you again for being on the show. I'm so excited to to just elevate your voice and share this with my community. And I hope those listening learned a lot. Uh, Julissa, how can everyone find you? You can find me on Instagram at Julissa's Recovery, which is spelled J-U-L-I-S-S-A, um, S and then dot recovery. And that's me. And you'll see me. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> have a great day. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye.